Holy Father, our Father and God in heaven, Father, we thank you for waking us up this early Sabbath morning to study your word. And Father, in spite of myself, may I be a blessing that accursed your people. Father, these precious people have come early to gain a blessing. And so, Father, I ask that you honor their sacrifice. May you fill us with the Holy Spirit, and may this presentation be relevant and applicable to our everyday lives. Father, as this nation is splitting apart as it seems, Father, help us to understand our mission and our purpose to bring healing to the nations. We ask for your spirit this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The United States of America, a nation that is connected with freedom and liberty of conscience. I find it very interesting that the servant of the Lord quotes in Great Conference, page 295, paragraph 3, this about the Constitution of the United States. Notice what she says, quoting Congressional document, serial number 200, document number 271, on Great Congress, page 295, paragraph 3. Notice what inspiration says. The framers of the Constitution recognize the, what principle? Eternal principle that man's relation with his God is above human legislation. And his rights of conscience inalienable. That word inalienable means natural rights. So she is implying by quoting the statement that the principles of the Constitution is divinely ordained. Now today, in the brief moment that I have, we're going to trace the history of the United States and the history of the First Amendment, not only from the United States, but from the Bible. We're going to study about the First Amendment from Babylon, Medo-Persia, pagan Rome, and papal Rome. We're going to study about the purpose of why God raised the United States of America. And so bear with me, get your seatbelts on, we're going to have a crash course history class, amen? amen? So first of all, we want to establish what was God's purpose in establishing the United States. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation 12, verse 15 and 16. Do you know that the United States is found in Revelation chapter 12? And as we study, we'll see this more clearly. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 15 and 16. The Bible says, and the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. So we have several characters here in this text. We have a serpent or a dragon. The serpent and the dragon persecutes the woman, the church. We have the woman what does the woman represent according to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25? The woman represents the church. So the serpent and dragon, Satan, persecutes the woman, the church. But what does the serpent and dragon do? How does the serpent and dragon try to destroy the woman? By spewing what out of his mouth? Water. And if we compare scripture with scripture, water represents highly populated areas, people's nation, kindreds, and tongues, and in Psalms 18.4, waters represent the floods of ungodly men. So Satan is trying to destroy the church 
by peoples, nations, multitudes, and tongues, and a flood of ungodly men. And then the earth was the opposite of water. Dry land, is that correct? And so if water represents a highly populated area, what does dry land represent? A land that is less populated, is that correct? Now, question, was Europe a highly populated area? We have many nations, kindreds, tongues, and peoples. Isn't that correct? We have Britain and Germany and Switzerland and Italy and Hungary and various ethnic people. So it's a highly populated area. And so Satan used all these nations during the Dark Ages to try to destroy the church, but then provided a relatively unpopulated area called North America for a way of escape. And so God established North America, the United States, to be a haven for religious liberty. In fact, who were the first people from Europe to come to America for religious liberty? Anyone? Can we say it louder? Pilgrims, amen? Now, in the Seventh Adventist Church, we have controversy of celebrating Christmas. We have controversy celebrating Easter. But we should not have a controversy celebrating Thanksgiving. Not only for the tofurkey and the nice mashed potatoes and stuffing, but it is a holiday that we at Seventh Avenue is very special because it celebrates religious liberty. Not only that, but there was a special passenger on the Mayflower. The Mayflower is the ship where the pilgrims came from. Notice what James White said in Life to Incidents, page 9. Notice what James White, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, he said this. My father descended from one of the pilgrims who came to America in the ship, what? Mayflower, and landed upon Plymouth Rock. So literally, the remnant of God's seed, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, his ancestor was on the Mayflower. It was prophetically ordained. So notice the progression. Europe, God's church is persecuted by the papacy on the Waldenses and, and the faithful, by various nations because church and state was merged. Then God brings a way of escape for the pilgrims to come to the United States of America, what would become the United States of America. And in North America, there is religious liberty for people to believe however they want by studying the Bible by their own personal relationship with God. And because of the safe haven of religious liberty, there was freedom of thinking for people to study the Bible for themselves. And God raises up a movement in 1844 called the Seventh-day Adventist Church. In fact, notice what inspiration says in Maranatha, page 193, paragraph 4. The Lord has done more for the United States than of any other country upon which the sun shines. Here he provided an asylum for his people where they could worship him according to the dictates of conscience. Here Christianity has progressed in its purity. The life-giving doctrine of the one mediator between God and man has been freely taught. God designed that this country should ever remain free for how many people? All people to worship him in accordance with the dictates of conscience. He designed that its civil institutions in their expansive production should represent the freedom of gospel privileges. So God ordained a United States of America to be a haven for worship of all people, Muslims, Buddhists, 
New Agers, Christians, where religious liberty would reign. And so because of this free freedom that people enjoy, and because people could study the Bible however they want, without the dictates of a government, without the dictates of a pastor telling them what to do, God raised up this movement in Revelation 12, 17, because the woman escaped to the earth. The Bible says, and the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of seed, which keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the people that believe the commands of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ came about when the woman went to the earth or North America. So God ordained North America as the jump-off point for God's end-time movement. Now notice what else that God established and why God established the United States. Notice what evangelism, page 570, paragraph 2 states. Inspiration states, God would be pleased to see far more accomplished by his people in the presentation of the truth for this time to the foreigners of America than has been done in the past. As I have testified for years, if we are quick in discerning the opening providence of God, we should be able to see in the multiplying opportunities to reach many foreigners in America a divinely appointed means of rapidly extending the third angel's message until all the nations of earth. God in his providence has brought men to our very doors and thrust them, as it were, into our arms that they might learn the truth and be qualified to do a work we could not do in getting the light before men of other tongues. So in other words, she's saying that immigrants, amen, God ordained the United States to open the door for immigrants to come to America to learn of our end-time gospel message, to learn the truth, so then they could learn it and pass it on to their family members and to the nations that they came from. There was a plan for immigration. And God brought every nation, kindred, tongue, and people to the United States of America for an opportunity to learn God's truth so that they could teach their family members and their family members could com communicate overseas and the gospel of the world be preached in all nations and then the end shall come. That's the purpose of the United States. You know, I go to Hawaii almost every summer thanks to Patrick Kayla and Evangelist Todd Pocliffe. I work there in the summertime. It's not a vacation. Amen. I repeat, it's not a vacation. Some people think it is. And I had some downtime, and we went to Waikiki. Some people like going there, I think. Yes? I was walking around there because I'm shooting a documentary. I'm shooting a history vlog that I'm going to do online in the future for the benefit of kids, trying to uh, integrate the gospel with history. And as I was filming footage in Waikiki, I noticed something very extraordinary that was based upon the Spirit of Prophecy quote. I saw Muslims. I saw people from Europe. I saw people from Asia. I saw people from all around the world in that one strip of beach. You see, God has given an opportunity for us to share the end time gospel message. God is bringing the people to us. But the policies that are being established currently, we may have limited time to enjoy those privileges. Because control and legislation is coming. And at this moment of freedom that we have, now is the time to take advantage of it. And so God established the United States of America for a beacon of religious freedom so that the Seventh-day Adventist Church could be established and God's end-time gospel message to be spread to all the world. 
Now, what does the spirit of prophecy says about the Constitution of the United States? Notice what inspiration says in Great Congress, page 564, paragraph 5. The Constitution of the United States guarantees liberty of conscience. Nothing is more dear or more fundamental. So she's saying that the Constitution provides something that is nothing more dear than fundamental, which is liberty of conscience. Liberty of conscience is that God gives us a choice to either accept him or not to accept him. You know, even in our homes, we try to force our children to believe the truth. And our tents are good. Is that correct? But that's not God's order. God's order is for us to show the attractiveness of Jesus, and the children must shoot for themselves whether they follow God or not. To try to force children to accept Jesus is no better than the papacy. And so liberty of conscience, nothing more dear than fundamental. Notice what she says, Great Controversy, page 442, paragraph 2. The founders of the nation wisely sought to guard against the employment of what power? Secular power on the part of the church with its inevitable result in tolerance and persecution. The Constitution provides that Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, and that no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. She is quoting the First Amendment to the Constitution. Now, in the First Amendment to the Constitution, we have the guarantee of the freedom for religion. That amendment, that freedom of religion, is divided into two components. We have what's called the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. The Establishment Clause is that government, the United States government, cannot form a national religion for all its citizens to be a part of. The Free Exercise Clause is that government cannot prevent us from exercising our right to worship and express our religious preferences unless it violates public safety. You know, if you're doing child sacrifices, that's not protected by the First Amendment. Amen. So we have the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. Now, we have established that the spirit of prophecy states that the Constitution and the First Amendment especially is divinely ordained. So we have to conclude that the principles of the First Amendment can be found in the Bible. Now, how can the First Amendment, especially freedom of religion, be found in the Bible? You know, Israel was a theocracy. But notice this. I found this something very fascinating. Notice what the Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 11. 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 11. Notice this. And behold, Amariah, the chief priest, is over you in all the matters of the who? All the matters of the Lord. Is that religious or government? Religious. And Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Judah, of all the, what matters? King's matters. Is that religious or political? So you have a separation. You have Amariah, the priest, dealing with all of the religious matters, and Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Judah, of all the king's matters. So you have a separation of church and state, even in ancient Israel. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 19 through 21, we see this principle in action. You have King Uzziah in chapters, in verse 16. 
he sought to go into the temple or the sanctuary to burn incense. Now, burning incense is a religious function only ordained by the priests. But he wanted to burn incense, and he wanted to usurp the role of the priest, and he burned incense and transgressed against God. God told him not to do that. In verse 17 and 18, Azariah the priest and 80 priests withstood the king, telling him that only the priests, the sons of Aaron, are consecrated to burn incense in the temple. But King Isaiah went ahead anyway, violating the separation of church and state. And in verse 21, King Isaiah was angry and attempted to burn incense, but he was stricken with leprosy and was cut off from the house of the Lord. And leprosy is a type of sin. So whenever a government seeks to legislate religion, God sees that as a sin. We must separate church and state. Now, the First Amendment, in recap, you have Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. In other words, no government should establish a national religion. And also, no government would prohibit the free exercise thereof. But do you know Babylon, Medo-Persia, pagan Rome, papal Rome, they all violated the First Amendment? And when they violated the First Amendment, you know, God's people had a response and a solution whenever that was violated, that we have a special work to do. Notice what happened in Babylon. Daniel, chapter 3, verse 4 to 6. The Bible says, Then an herald cried aloud to you, it was commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that all what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, Sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whosoever falleth not down and worship shall the same hour be cast in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And what part of the First Amendment did Nebuchadnezzar violate? He was trying to establish a national religion. He was violating the Establishment Clause. Now, when he tried to impose a national, yea, a worldwide religion, based upon his government, notice what God's people did in response to that. Notice what the Bible says in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. The Bible says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. In other words, God's people stood up when the First Amendment rights were violated. You see, there's going to come a time, unfortunately, when this nation will violate the Establishment Clause. And like the three Hebrew boys, we as God's people must stand up for freedom of religion. Not only for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but for all religions. Because God gives us a choice. And so God is preparing us through these types of history that we as a people not only are preaching the everlasting gospel, not only are we doing medical missioning work, but we are also to stand up for the powerless, the abused, those that are being abused by the law of a dictatorial government. We as Seventh-day Adventists are risen up to stand up for religious liberty. Yeah. 
Then you have the Medes and Persians. What do they do? Daniel chapter 6, verse 7. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors, and the princes, the counselors, and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute or a government law and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god for a man for 30 days, save for of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed and according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. In other words, the Medes and Persians said, you can't worship anyone but us. If you pray to anyone else but the king, you will be thrown into the lion's den. In other words, the Medes and Persians violated the free exercise clause, preventing people from worshiping or expressing worship freely. Now, who was thrown in the lion's den? And why was Daniel thrown in the lion's den? For praying, is that correct? Because he was expressing his free exercise clause to worship God however he wanted. Notice what the Bible says in Daniel chapter 6, verse 4 to 5. The Bible says this, And the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. And what did Daniel do? And now Daniel knew that the writing was signed. He went into his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he nailed upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and made supplication before his God, even though a law was passed. Daniel remained faithful in worshiping the true God. The Bible says they found no fault in Daniel. There was no dirt on Daniel. The only dirt that Daniel had was that he wanted to worship God freely. So to our end-time church, God's church will be pure. Because God's people will receive the righteousness of Christ so there will be no dirt or fall upon us because our sins are forgiven. And because of that, we will exercise our free exercise clause and worship God even in the midst of a law to penalize us. The lion's den is coming. But God is faithful to shut the mouths of lions. And what did the kings of Babylon and Persia still continue to do when they realized that Daniel's God is the true God? When they realized that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... God was a true God. I find this very interesting. Even though they knew that God is God, notice what they still did. Daniel 3.29. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. This does not make it right. The spirit of Babylon is forced worship. Babylon does not change. And so even though they received and knew, acknowledged the true God, they still passed the law forcing people to worship the true God when God gives us freedom of choice. What did the Medes and Persians do? Notice what the Bible says in Daniel chapter 6, verse 26. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever, and his kingdom 
with whom shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. So the Medes and Persians and the Babylonians continue their establishment of violating the First Amendment. Then we have pagan Rome. What did pagan Rome do? Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. The Bible says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, and ye shall be tried, and ye shall be, have tribulation ten prophetic days, or ten years. Be unto faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Pagan Rome persecuted Christians because they did not acknowledge the supremacy of the government. Pagan Rome didn't care what religion you were as long as you acknowledged that your religion was inferior to the government. And what Christians did is that we have no king other than King Jesus. And because of that, Christians were thrown into coliseums. Christians were thrown into persecution and burned to death because they sought to exercise their First Amendment rights. And what happened when pagan Rome sought to persecute Christians? Notice how Jesus responded when Pilate sought to persecute. The Bible says in John 18, 33, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? So Pilate is investigating Jesus and asking Jesus, are you trying to establish a rival civil government to take my place? Notice what Jesus says in his response. John chapter 18, verse 36 and 37. The Bible says Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this what? If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants what? Fight, that I should not be delivered unto the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause shall I, I into the world, that I shall bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. In other words, Jesus is saying that my government is not of this world. My government is in heaven. And that if my government's in the world, then I would have a military to overthrow you, Pilate. In other words, Jesus was sharing with pagan Rome that there is a separation between church and state. My government's in heaven, not on earth. And as we as Seventh-day Adventists, sadly, as we'll learn in the afternoon presentation here today, many Seventh-day Adventists are caught up in partisan politics thinking their kingdom is on this earth rather than their kingdom is in heaven. God has called us to firmly declare a separation between church and state. And Jesus even taught that in pagan Rome. What did papal Rome do? Daniel, chapter 7, verse 25. The Bible says, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. So in other words, the papacy, what they did, is that if you do not follow me, we will persecute you. The same spirit of pagan Rome, the same spirit of the Medes and Persians, the same spirit of Babylon came through and it streamed to papal Rome. And I find it interesting in Revelation 13, verse 1. 
The leopard beast that represents the papacy. What elements does he have? He has the elements of the Lion of Babylon. He has the, the elements of the Medes and Persians. He has the elements of pagan Rome. All those symbols are amalgamated, and the principles of violating the separation of church and state is culminated in the papacy. The papacy established a state religion through the governments of Europe. And what did God's people do at this time? You see, God raised up a movement called the Protestant Reformation. And in this Reformation, you have the Waldenses. The Waldenses said that we have the right to study the Bible for ourselves. We don't have to have a priest interpret the Bible for us. Then in 1517, and we're approaching a very special anniversary on October 31st of this year of the Protestant Reformation, a Catholic monk named Martin Luther saw that the papacy was a system of control and forced worship. You see, the papacy at that time said this, in order for your sins to be forgiven, you have to pay a tax called the indulgence. You have to pay up and pay us money in order for your sins to be forgiven. And Martin Luther, reading the Bible for himself, and discovered in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the judge shall live by what? Faith. And is faith forced? Yes or no? It's a choice. It's a belief that comes within you that you choose. And so as Martin Luther sparked a revolution among Christendom, saying that we do not have to go to a priest, a prelate, a pope to tell us to have our sins forgiven. We do not have to go to a king or a priest or a pastor to learn the Bible. We can learn the Bible for ourselves. The principle of Acts 5.29 became to light. Then Peter said to other apostles and answered said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Are we obeying men more than God here today, brothers and sisters? I mean, we're trained to do that in society. We easily accept what a person of authority tells us what to do. We easily sway to what a person of influence tells us what to do. But like the Protestant Reformation, where people began to study the Bible for ourselves, it is our responsibility to learn truth for ourselves. And so... The Protestant Reformation overturned the hierarchy of priests and prelates. That every individual has a personal relationship with God. Every individual has a right to study and learn about Jesus for themselves. No longer should Bibles be chained to churches. No longer do the common people not have access to the Bible. But we are a priesthood of believers that every person has a right to teach and preach the Word of God. Just like the early church. That's why the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who had called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're all called to this priesthood. We're all called to do ministry. That we as God's people, we have the ability to preach and teach the word of God. We have the ability to do ministry. We do not have to follow a man. God has all ordained us to do a special type of ministry. And as lay people, 
God has called us to be a priesthood of believers. And so the Protestant Reformation challenged the church-state structure and declared that each individual could study and learn of God for themselves. And this personal relationship of studying God for themselves and studying the Bible for themselves led to the toppling of papal authority. And then we go back to Revelation chapter 12. The Protestant Reformation, you had John Calvin, and you had Anabaptists, and you had various other uh, Protestant denominations that came about as they studied the word for themselves. And then from that Protestant Reformation, you had the pilgrims coming to the United States of America. And the Protestant Reformation sparked the establishment of the United States. In fact, notice what inspiration says in Great Congress, page 441, paragraph 1. Freedom of religious faith was also granted, every man being permitted to worship God according to the dictates of his conscience. Republicanism and Protestantism became the fundamental principles of the nation. These principles are the secret of its power and prosperity. So in other words, he's saying that the power and prosperity of the United States, the secret of it is republicanism and Protestantism. Now, these are fancy words. Republicanism is simply this. Welcome to my American government class. Republicanism is simply this. You, the people, have the right to elect representatives, and those representatives have a social contract with you that they serve the best interests for you. If they do not serve the best interests for you, then you have the right to remove them out of office by voting new representatives. That's republicanism. So in other words, we need a well-literate group of voters to understand what is the best interest of society, and so therefore, if they violate the Constitution, if they violate freedom of conscience, then we have the right to vote in new leaders. That's republicanism. Protestantism is simply this. We protest against forced religious authority, and every person has a right to study the Bible for themselves. Freedom of religion. Freedom in government and freedom of religion. And that is the secret of its power. The oppressed and downtrodden throughout Christendom have turned to this land with interest and hope. Millions have sought its shores, and the United States has risen to a place among the most powerful nations of earth. That was God's purpose of the United States. But sadly, Protestantism is being attacked and is degrading and is morphing to what's called apostate Protestantism. So what is happening today? February 2, 2017, Johnson Act. President Trump vowed on Thursday to overturn a law restricting political speech by tax-exempt churches, a potential huge victory for the religious right and a gesture to evangelicals, a voting bloc he attracted to his campaign by promising to free up their pulpits. In other words, right now, no church can endorse a political candidate from its pulpit. 
No pastor can say within the church, say, vote for this person or vote for that person because we believe in the separation of church and state. The current president stating, we want to do away with that. We want to empower the churches politically. And so, repealing the law would require approval by Congress, which could prove challenging given that Democrats and even some Republicans will resist what many view as erosion of the separation between church and state. Eliminating the measure has been a goal of many social conservatives who argue that it unfairly restricts clergy members from expressing themselves by endorsing or speaking out against political candidates. And so, the current administration wants to empower evangelical churches to use government to force their agenda upon the American people. A merger of church and state. In fact, notice what the Washington Post said. Opinion, religious law may be coming to America, but it's not Shiara or Muslim, it's Christian. Even the world is seeing something different. That apostate Protestantism is on the scene. And you know what's dangerous about evangelical Christianity? They want to force people or legislate morality. Rather than God changing the heart, they want to force people to become Christians. I've read articles and i read statements and, and sermons. They wouldn't mind having minorities of different faiths and different opinions to be out of this nation. And so you have here this establishment or this violation of the free exercise clause right before our eyes. And so what's the big deal? What's the big deal about ministers and pastors openly declaring a political candidate in their churches. Notice what Great Controversy says. Great Controversy, page 592, paragraph 3. The dignitaries of church and state will unite to bribe, persuade, or compel all classes to honor the Sunday. The lack of divine authority will be supplied by oppressive enactments. Political corruption is destroying love of justice and regard for truth. And even in free America, Rulers and legislators, in order to secure what favor? Public favor. Will yield to the what demand? Popular demand for the law enforcing Sunday observance. Liberty of conscience, which has cost so great a sacrifice, will no longer be respected. In other words, how is popular demand expressed? How do you secure public favor? In politics, through voting. So if Christian evangelicals have their way and are empowered to endorse candidates from the pulpit, it allows for more mobilization of votes so that this type of legislation can come about. Because honestly, all politicians, what matters to them is not policy but votes. And if the popular demand says, we want a Sunday law, the mechanism will be already there if the Johnson Amendment is done away with. And so we're seeing here, right before our eyes, interesting developments that apostate Protestantism, one that, like the papacy, is trying to force people to be Christians, to come on the scene. But what are we as God's people to do? Notice what inspiration says in Great Congress, page 443, paragraph 3. Whenever 
the church has obtained secular power. You see, apostate Protestantism wants to attain secular power. She has employed it to punish dissent from her doctrines. Protestant churches that have followed in the steps of Rome by forming alliance with worldly powers have manifested a similar desire to restrict liberty of conscience. Religious liberty is being threatened right before our eyes. But God has a special work for us to do. What are we to do? Notice what the Bible says in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. Thus speaking the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother, and oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor, and let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. So if you see a Muslim oppressed for not being able to wear her headscarf, we should stand up for them. If you see other religions being oppressed because they're different from Christianity, we should stand up for them. We need to stand up for religious liberty, not only for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but for all people. Because when we as Seventh-day Adventists show the love of God, saying that God has given us a choice and not force, and we stand up for religious liberty for all people, I believe that will melt the hearts of these other religions and these other denominations. And I believe that as we preach justification by faith, along with religious liberty, that it will swell to a loud cry. And we could say, come out of her, my people, and many will join the remnant world. A forgotten ministry for our church is religious liberty. When we see a brother or a sister of a different faith being persecuted, be a Muslim, be a sheikh, it is up to us to stand up for them. God is calling us to do a special work. As I bring some final points. What are we to do? Volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 716. Let the watchmen now lift up their voice and give the message which is present truth for this time. Let us show people where we are in prophetic history and seek to arouse the spirit of true Protestantism, awakening the world to a sense of the value of the privileges of religious liberty so long enjoyed. Now is the time to cry aloud and spare not the importance of religious liberty for all people. We are not doing the will of God if we sit in quietude doing nothing to preserve liberty of conscience. Fervent effectual prayer should be ascending to heaven that this calamity may be deferred until we can accomplish the work which has so long been neglected. Let there be most earnest prayer, and then let us work in harmony with our prayers. God is calling us to stand for religious liberty. It's time for us to support our religious liberty department. We have Adventist attorneys right now fighting in our behalf, and we should get educated. And if there's laws that are violating liberty of conscience, we should call our congressmen. Because nothing is more dear and fundamental than the First Amendment of liberty of conscience, of freedom of religion. You see, do you know that we as Seventh-day Adventists will be given the final call to the United States of America before her probation closes? 
You see, inspiration tells us that the Seventh-day Adventist Church will be declaring religious liberty and that the United States will one day repudiate or tear apart every principle of the Constitution. But the last appeal to the United States will be given to us that the United States not go to the edge of beyond no return to declare that we must preserve freedom of religion. We're called to be Stevens. We're called to be Stevens. And just as the Sanhedrin stoned Stephen, so too we will receive the stones of persecution. But as Stephen was being persecuted, what did he see? He saw Jesus in the clouds of glory. Jesus will come to deliver his people. But we have a work to do, brothers and sisters. We have a work to stand up for religious liberty. And God is calling each and every Seventh-day Adventist to do this neglected work. Already, there is a movement of righteousness by faith, but along with that movement needs to be a movement of religious liberty. That will help finish the work, along with medical missionary work. And God is calling each and every one of us to stand up for him and stand up for the oppressed so that people could see a demonstration of religious liberty that God is giving us freedom to choose him or to reject him. You see, apostate Protestantism is saying, we're going to force you to be Christian. But the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we teach, it's a choice. And we're going to attract you, not by laws to punish, but by showing the true law of God, which is love thy neighbor as thyself. That is our law. The counterfeit law is coming, which is Sunday. But the true law keepers, those that keep the commands of God and the faith of Jesus will demonstrate love your neighbor as yourself because love is the fulfilling of the law. And God is calling us to be light bearers, to stand up for religious liberty. Our Father and God in heaven, Father, we thank you for raising this church to do a special work. We thank you for giving forth and providing the United States of America so that we could have freedom of religion, where people all around the world can come here for safe refuge. But Father, we know that this right is limited time. And brothers and sisters, as your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, is there someone today say, Father, today, help me to stand up for religious liberty. Help me to stand up for those religions that are oppressed by apostate Protestantism. Help me to be an instrument in these last days to not only preach the three angels' messages, but also to declare the rights we have for religious liberty. If that's your desire, I simply ask that we stand, if that's your desire. Holy Father, our Father God in heaven, Father, we thank you for the opportunity in this time in Earth's history to stand up for the cherished principles of freedom of religion, of the separation of church and state. And Father, we are standing because within ourselves we are powerless, we are weak, and we're feeble. So today we're standing and asking that you do something special in us to empower us and to strengthen our faith in these perilous times. 
Father, help us to stand up for religious liberty, not only for the Seventh Avenue Church, but for all people. Father, help us to be instruments in these last days. And as the storms of persecution come in the horizon, when we stand faithful to the end, to show the love that you have for us, that our love does not wax cold, and as the apostate law of Sunday will be declared more loudly, help us to uplift the law of love, to love our neighbors, yea, our enemies as ourselves. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to call us to do this most valuable ministry. We ask for special grace here today. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.